Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Where's everybody? They're here listening to the radio. Listen. Listen for a minute. Listen to it. I'm not hearing anything. You would, though, if it were playing. That's a fountain of conversation, man. Whoa, that's a geyser. You're all I've got tonight. What a glorious night. Let's just talk. Exchange ideas. It's good we talk. Jay Talking. WBZ. Tonight. News Radio 1030. WBZ News Radio 1030. You're Jay Talking. We're live midnight to five. And, well, we have Joe Milliken with us author of a book called Let's Go, Benjamin Orr and the Cars. Hi, Joe. How are you tonight? I'm glad to be here. Yeah, very well. Tell us a little bit about you before we get into your book. Well, um, I am originally from Boston, although I left that area at a young age, um, and I have lived in the New Hampshire, Vermont area for about 40 years or so, and I have been a published writer for about 20 years. Uh, but it's all been newspapers and magazines up till now. Um, I've been an editor at a weekly community paper in my area, and um, I consider myself a music journalist first, and I've done some writing for various music-related publications and websites and things like that. I also publish my own music-related website called Standing Room Only. And now I can call myself an author because this is my first crack at um, publishing a book. Okay. Can you start with a very detailed account of how the cars started? I, I believe Ben Orr was instrumental in that. He was kind of a founder. He was co-founder of the band along with uh, Rico Kasich, sure. And uh, they met early on. Ben is originally from Cleveland, Ohio, um, home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And... Um, Rick is originally from the Baltimore area, but his family, when he was a teenager, moved um, to Columbus, Ohio. So they were kind of in the same area as they um, got out of school, and they sort of were in the same community and the same type of bands and music scene, and they met, met each other a couple times. And then one day they were at a party and found themselves in a basement surrounded by instruments, and uh, Ben picked up an acoustic guitar and sang a Beatles song to Rick. And Rick is quoted as saying that it was the most beautiful voice he had ever heard in his life. And they became partners at that point. And um, they <laughs> they did a lot of uh, they did a lot of miles together, um, trying to find uh, the right bands, the right music scene, the right bandmates. And they eventually ended up in Boston um, about ten years later. And uh, Boston is where they kind of hit it big and, and finally got their record deal. So uh, Ben was from Baltimore and, excuse me, Ben was from Cleveland. Cleveland, And Rick was correct. from Baltimore. Where was yeah. this party where the two of them would meet? It was in uh, the Columbus area. They were still in Ohio at the time. Um, it was not too long after they had met. Um, and like I said, they were in the same sort of music community. 
um, you know, playing in different bands and doing music promotion and stuff like that. So they had met each other a couple times. Um, ironically, um, Rick had already known about Ben um, because Ben was um, sort of a teen star, if you will, in the Cleveland area in his younger days. Um, I'm sure we can talk more about that as we go along. Um, so Rick kind of knew who Ben was already. Um, but that's kind of how it started. Um, so when they first got together and, you know, Ben sang for Rick and they decided to become partners, that was still, you know, like 10 years or so before, you know, they, they finally got their record deal in Boston. So they logged a lot of miles in between there. Okay, um, Don, how, much, how many of those miles did they log as the cars? When did they actually form the cars? The cars were 10 years later um, in the Boston area um, when... They were in, still in the Columbus area. Rick decided that he wanted to go to Boston. He thought it was, you know, um, a very musical and cultural town, a lot of colleges, so he figured there'd be a lot of, you know, places that bands could play. So he went to Boston. Um, Rick, I mean, Ben stayed behind in the Cleveland area for a little while because he had just lost his dad. So he was staying back in Cleveland to help his mom get settled down and things like that. And then probably six months later, after Rick had already gone to Boston, Ben followed suit and went to Boston and joined Rick there. How did they find so the they, other guys? They found the other guys once they got to Boston. Um, they, at the time, this is the early 70s, so the whole folk scene was kind of big at the time, acoustic guitars and that kind of thing. So they were kind of doing that vibe. Um, they had a band called Milkwood, which was, um, you know, that kind of acoustic kind of sounding thing. And they did an album um, under as Milkwood called How's the Weather. And um, they actually got a hold of Greg Hawks at that point, who ended up being the car's um, keyboard player. And he played on their Milkwood album. So they kind of got hooked up with him at that point. And then, um, after a couple years of the acoustic thing, um, they decided to go back towards being a rock band. And they formed a band called Richard and the Rabbits <laughs> and did that thing for um, a year or two. And then they formed a band called Cat and Swing, which was a rock band, but it kind of had maybe a Steely Dan, more of a jazzy kind of feel to it. Um, but that started catching hold, and they started gaining some momentum, and were getting bigger crowds in the club, so Captain Swing was doing pretty well. Um, but deep down, Rick still didn't really dig that sound completely. He, he was more of a minimalist, like, you know, Velvet Underground kind of stuff. Um, he wasn't into the more steely dan jazzier kind of sound so they broke down cat and swing and um brought in drummer david robinson um who was in a punk band called dmz at the time who played at the rat a lot um and he kind of knew him already so they brought david robinson in and they also brought in elliot easton um brought those guys in and that's when they formed the cars and this is around 1976 that's when they all finally got together as the cars that's pretty cool. Uh, now, who would you, let's see, how do we put this? What would you call the genre that they were, partic particularly in the beginning? Yeah, you know, it's really hard to pinhole or pigeon. It, <clears throat> they've been called a lot of things, and you know, it's hard to pigeonhole them. They have been called a pop band. They've been called a rock band, a new wave band. 
uh, maybe even a punk band, because when the Cars first started playing together, they were playing the Rat, and that was a real punk music kind of scene. So they've been labeled all those things, but um, I, I think they're really hard to label. I think they're kind of a combination of all of those things. If you things. had to pick one, just, you know, if you had to pick one, what would you pick? I would call them a. I would call them a rock band. I would call them a classic rock band. Okay. That that that's would be how I would label them. Okay. I think not not arguing with you. I think I would go with new wave bands. <laughs> I, it's definitely understandable, and we could definitely argue about that. Because sure. I kind of think <laughs> I I kind of put them in the same kind of art rocky new wavy fold as the Talking Heads. Absolutely. You know what? I mean, I, I can't argue with that. Like I said, that's they've definitely been, you know, they've been called probably, you know, the most popular of the new wave bands. Um, but I think especially with their first couple albums, with the debut album and Candy O, I do think they had some rock music sensibilities in there. And I consider those their two biggest hits, if you will. Um, so I lean more towards rock, but, you know, new wave, I, I won't argue with that. Right um, on. Now let's focus on Ben. And he was early on known as a heartthrob. Can you talk about that? Yeah, he's definitely known as the heartthrob of the cars for sure. He was... Um, he definitely was that, but I tell you what, um, it goes it goes way beyond that. He was a very talented individual, uh, multi instrumentalist, um, and the thing about Ben is, you know, I've had people ask me, you know, why did you pick Ben to write about? Why didn't you just write about the Cars, the band themselves? Um, and it kind of happened by chance, you know, a fan um, of Ben and the Cars. Um, reached out to me and um, said I should investigate and write about Ben. And I thought the same thing. Well, why pick Ben as an individual and why not just write about the band? So I investigated him a little bit and I found out things about him that I didn't know. Um, I didn't know he was from Cleveland, you know, home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And he was um, somebody who realized early in life what he wanted to do um, from like the age of 10. From like the age of 10, he wanted to be um, a rock and roller. He was in his first band at age 13 as a drummer. And then by the time he was 16 or 17, he joined a band called the Grasshoppers, which was one of the hottest bands in Cleveland at the time. And there was also a TV show in Cleveland called Upbeat, and it was a nationally syndicated TV show. It was kind of like the American Bandstand of Cleveland. And his band... The Grasshoppers was the house band for that show. So here's this kid at 17. He, by the way, he quit school as a sophomore because he knew that rock and roll was all he wanted to do. He wanted to be a professional musician. His parents backed him and let him leave school. So here's this kid at 17. He's left school. He's become a professional musician. His, team, his, uh, his band is... Um, on this nationally syndicated television show, and he was kind of um, a star in Cleveland as a teenager. And I mentioned earlier how Rick had already known about Ben, and that's how he knew of Ben. He saw Ben on TV on the Upbeat show. So that was, that was this whole thing, and this is all 15 years before he ever 
became famous with the cars. So he had this whole other thing that went on early in life, and that was really the hook that made me want to write about him. Because I contacted a couple of friends who were cars fans, and nobody knew any of this about him. So I'm like, that's it. I'm going to write a biography about Ben because that whole part of his early life was really interesting to me, and um, it just went from there. He had kind of a haircut like a maybe a Partridge family dude or a one of the monkeys or something. I mean, I can see why he would be a heartthrob, and he had the look for the time. Oh, yeah, he definitely had the look, and he had he had an aura about him. I mean, when I just started to write this book, Ben had already passed away several years before that, so obviously I couldn't interview the man himself. So what's the next best thing to do? It's to interview everybody that I could that knew him. And a lot of friends and family that I interviewed, they um, there was a common thread, and they all said that just Ben had this aura about him. He would walk into a room, and whether you knew who he was or not, everybody just kind of turned, and who's that guy? So, uh, yeah, he was the heartthrob, but like I said, there was a lot more to it than that. I mean, he is... Okay, so uh, you, call, you say he's a diverse talent, So he, yep. meaning he played a lot of instruments? Well, yeah. I mean, the first band he was in at age 13, he was a drummer. And then at 17, when he's the leader of the Grasshoppers, he is the lead singer and the guitar player. And then when by the time he gets to the cars, he's a bass player. So he was the kind of guy that, like, whatever band he was in at the time, he just kind of conformed his talents to whatever the band needed. Oh, you need a guitar player? Okay, I'll do that. Oh, you need a bass player now? Okay, I'll be the bass player. So he was multi-talented, and his voice is the most important thing to me. I mean, he truly has one of the great, iconic rock voices of all time. To me, he is right up there with Paul McCartney, David Bowie, Paul Rogers, A Bad Company, Ben Orr. I mean, his voice is just stellar, and I think that's what puts him above and beyond, for sure. Okay, what are some of the songs, the car songs that he sang on? Oh, boy. Um, well, their their biggest hit they ever had, Drive. He sings. He sings Let's Go, sings Candy O, sings Just What I Needed, sings Bye Bye Love, sings Moving in Stereo, sings All Mixed Up. Um, a lot of their hits he sang. I mean, Rick sang some hits, too, and I think they did a really good job as co-lead singers because Rick was more of a quirky kind of singer. So the songs that were a little more quirky, um, Rick sang. What are some of the songs? Were, remind me, what are some of the songs Rick sang so I can think of, think about that? Um, you know, like uh, You Might Think, um, those kind of things. Um, it's just, they're, they're kind of escaping me at the moment. That's but, all right. Um, That's okay. But yeah, he. I mean, but he he sang a lot of their he sang a lot of their hits too. I mean, but he knew that when a song needed a serious vocal, um, that Ben got it. Okay. For sure. <laughs> what is your favorite Cars song? My favorite Cars song is probably "Bye Bye Love," um, but I kind it's weird to me because that first album of theirs, that debut album is just, I mean, that might as well be a greatest hits record. I mean, every song on it True. has been played on classic rock radio. And the three songs at the end of the album, um, Bye Bye Love and Moving in Stereo and All Mixed Up, those three songs together are almost like one song to me. Um, so the end of that first album, 
those three songs are probably my favorites. And those are my favorite one, too. I feel like they're, they're cool. They're kind of dark, and I like yeah, the move, yeah. I like the moving in stereo beginning. Oh yeah, man, just great stuff. But if I had to pick one, I'd say Bye Bye Love. Okay. <clears throat> How big did they get anyway? I mean, we. We love them. We know them. They're a Boston band. But how big did they get in the rest of the world? They they got pretty big. I mean, they have. They I think they totaled like fifteen top forty hits. Um, and that and that spans. I mean, they they didn't really they didn't really last a long time. They were only really huge for about a decade. Um, from about seventy eight to eighty eight was their lifespan. But they also did six consecutive platinum-selling albums. I mean, I just mentioned, you know, 15 uh, top 40 hits. And uh, to date, they've sold 30 million albums worldwide. So they got pretty big. Uh, they, I will say, though, a unique thing about them is they didn't really tour the world. They pretty much were an American band in, a, in Canada. They kind of stayed in North America for the most part. They went over to um, London in that area um, for a tour when their first album came out. Um, but after that, they kind of stayed home for the most part. So they didn't tour the world a lot, but they were pretty big in America and in Canada. Who's and, bigger, um, Talking Heads or The Cars? <laughs> Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I guess people might say the talking heads because they lasted a little longer, um, but I got to go with the cars. Okay. Um, I just I just think they had, you know, for to to pack that many hits and that many album sales into a little less than a ten year span is um, is pretty remarkable to me. It is. I I want to ask you who I, I'll tell you what. There's about three minutes. We'll spend that on talk about some of the people you interviewed. Some of the more interesting people that you interviewed about the cars there must be other luminaries that you can mention well i tried to interview like i said before um because i couldn't interview ben himself i needed to talk to as many people as i could um who knew him and because this is not a car it's not a cars book it's a biography about his life i had to interview you know not just stuff when he was huge with the cars you know i interviewed a lot of people growing up um, with him, bandmates when he was young. Um, I interviewed, you know, the executive producer of, um, or the son of the executive producer of the Upbeat show. And um, as far as like when they once they got to Boston and stuff, I interviewed Electra Records um, record executives. Who, who was the Electra guy? I'm just curious. Um, the guy who signed him was George Daly, was his name. And uh, it, there's a, I have a story in there about how. Um, you know, the world-famous record executive Clive Davis um, was also after the cars at that time. And once they, once word got out that they were um, on the verge of signing a deal, three or four different labels converged on Boston to try to get them and sign them. Um, but I interviewed George Daly, and he was the first guy to get to them, if you will. Um, his daughter was playing, um, was a student at Harvard at the time, and she called him up and said, hey, you got to come see this band, The Cars, and they're playing at my college. So he went to Harvard to visit his, um, his sister, and he saw the band about a week before all the other record executives saw them. And he, um, he saw them, and he, like, he, after 20 minutes, he said, I have to sign this band. And he, found, he, he was with their manager at the time. His name was Freddie Lewis, who I believe was a WBCN DJ at one point. 
and he actually wrote out a record deal on a cocktail napkin, and they both signed it, and and they 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 had a deal, and this was about a week before all these other labels converged to try to sign them. So George um, was able to. Um, Try, he was able to get to the cars before the great Clive Davis did and, and got to sign them. So they, wrote, I mean, they ended, signed a record deal on a napkin, cocktail napkin, which tells me they were probably having drinks. That's generally a bad idea. <laughs> yeah, sign a see, contract. You see, but if you see the cars, though, you, you see, he knew. I mean, he knew they had. They, they, he knew I know, they good had for him, bad talk. for them. I wonder if What's they. That? I wonder how much of that napkin version of the contract stood up. I'm sure they got a, a more finite and legal version. Hey, Why? Could I, could I interject something real yes, quick? Yes, of course. Um, I feel bad that I didn't tell you a couple of Rick songs when you asked me before. Yeah. <laughs> so I just wanted to throw in there really quick just to give you a couple of them. Okay. Uh, you might think, Shake It Up, Hello Again, those types of songs. Ah, all right. <laughs> I just wanted to throw that in okay. there. Well, this is a book about uh, Ben, so you're not, you're not responsible for knowing the, the Rick songs. But while we're on Rick, if Ben Orr was such a a magic child, why was Rick the, considered the front guy? I always kind of thought Rick was considered the front guy, but it seems like Ben had all the talent, or had a lot of talent. Yeah. Well, Rick was definitely the front man, and he was the leader of the band. And I tell you, the, the main reason why to me is because he was the songwriter. Oh. He was the main lyricist. Now, the other guys got to contribute. You know, he'd bring the songs into the studio and the lyrics. And, you know, when they would start, you know, arranging songs in the studio, the other guys in the band would all get their two cents and help with the music part of it. But Rick was the lyricist. And, you know, Ben Ord, I mean, Ben doesn't sing Drive if Rick doesn't write it. He doesn't sing Let's Go or all these other hits if Rick doesn't write it. There's no band if you don't write the song. Um, so I think that was how he sort of projected as the leader of the band, because he was the, the lyricist. He wrote all those, all those songs. Okay. Now you, uh, are there any other really interesting people that you interviewed before we move on? Because we, we stopped for the weather and the news any other interesting folks you talked about the record guys that was cool what else anybody else mother uh teacher in school anything like that anybody famous that we'd know with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time <gasps> no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Yeah, I mean, I interviewed um, famous rock photographers. Um, I interviewed um, the significant women in his life. Um, he was married twice. I, I talked to both his ex-wives. He had one other significant other. They were together and engaged for several years, but never got married. And um, when he did his solo album in the mid-'80s called The Lace, she was the lyricist, if you will, for that album and wrote with him. I interviewed her, and I also interviewed uh, the mother of his son, um, who, ironically, they both live in Vermont, where I live. Um, ben, when the cars broke up, um, Ben wanted to move away from Boston, and he actually moved to Vermont. 
um, at the end of his life. And as far as some famous musicians go, the last band that Ben was ever in was a band called Big People. And it was a super group, if you will. Um, the other guys in the band were Jeff Carlisi, um, who's a guitar player from the band 38 Special. The drummer was Liberty DeVito, who was Billy Joel's longtime drummer. Derek St. Holmes was in that band. He was um, Ted Nugent's yeah. yep, rhythm guitar player back in the 70s. Um, another guitar rocker, uh, Pat Travers, was in the band for a while. So these guys were putting a band together in Atlanta, and they're all sitting around going, okay, who are we going to get to play on bass? And Ben was one of their favorite musicians. All of them admired Ben. So they, um, I think it was Derek St. Holmes who um, got a hold of Elliot Easton, and Elliot gave him Ben's number, called him up on the phone and said, why don't you come down to Atlanta and hang out with us and see what you think? Ben went down to Atlanta. He joined that band. They went on tour with Styx. And they would, like, play songs from, like, all of their bands. They weren't writing their own material yet, so they'd play a couple Billy Joel songs. They'd play a couple Car songs, play a couple 38 Special songs. And they were building momentum, and they were about ready to sign a record deal, start writing their own material to put an album out, and that is when Ben was diagnosed with cancer. So it never happened. So I got to interview all of those guys, and all of these famous guys in their own right, and they were all in in awe of Ben Orr, and they all told me that. He said the first time we met him, he came down to Atlanta, walked into a restaurant, we were all sitting there, and all our mouths were hanging open going, oh, my God, that's Ben Orr. So you have these famous rocker guys who have toured all over the world, and they were all in awe of Ben. So that just shows you the aura that he presented um, to everybody. Yeah, so, so it was really cool to interview those rockers who knew Ben at the end. Okay, let's go. Benjamin Orr in the cars. Joe Milliken's with us. Now you have a lot of pictures in the book too. I mean, pictures of, of like famous. Oh yeah, famous um, people are always big, fun. That was a big selling point for me to get my publishing deal. Actually, was the fact that along the way I collected about 500 photos along the way, and these are from people's personal collections. So many of them were like never before seen or published. I mean, we're talking about. You know, a bandmate when he was 15 years old, taking a picture of Ben out of his own photo album and scanning it and sending it to me. Um, I, I tell you, one of the hardest things I had to do was when the publisher said, okay, now you can send us the photos you want in the book. You can pick 35. And I'm thinking, i got to pick 35 photos out of 500? <laughs> um, so that was pretty tough to do. Um, so, yes, there are a lot of photos in the book, and almost all of them are never-before-seen or unpublished photos. So I think that's, um, that's a really cool aspect of the book, I think. Can you describe some of your favorite photos? Oh, boy. I got, I, you know what? I really like the photos of his early life um, in his bands, The Grasshoppers. Just because, well, when Ben was young, I interviewed a guy that was in the Grasshoppers with him, and he told me that at 17, Ben already had women following him around wherever he went, and he was kind of like the Elvis of Cleveland <laughs> in the early 60s. So I like vintage stuff anyway, so I really like those old photos of him, you know, with his Elvis hair and um, dressed to the nines. You know, I mean, back then, um, you wanted to look really sharp when you went on stage. They had, like, these little uniforms and they wore, they wore beetle boots and they dyed them green because they were the grasshoppers. Yeah. Um, wow. um, so I really like the older vintage things. And I actually have a couple of photos of him as an infant. 
Um, so there were a lot of Cars fans that were following my progress along the way when they learned about my book, and a lot of them really love those old photos. I mean, I've got a photo in there, um, an elementary school photo. Um, so I personally like the younger photo stuff. Okay. But there's a lot of people out there who like, you know, would rather see the stuff when he was a rocker after he was famous, too. So, Are there any websites or fan, for Cars fans, like chat rooms or groups, like a Cars group? Oh, yeah. Um, right. Facebook is full of them. Yeah. Facebook has several Ben Orr groups. They have several Cars groups. And that was very instrumental for me. Um, I ended up, as I went along doing this book, I, like I said, I would have Cars fans and Ben fans just contact me out of the blue and say, hey, I hear you're doing this book about Ben. And I'd say, yep, when it's done, you can have it. And I'd take their name and their address, and I'd start a mailing list. The mailing list grew to over a thousand names over time. Um, so those groups on Facebook were really instrumental in helping me spread the word um, about this book. So yeah, if people go to Facebook and just plug in the cars or plug in Ben Orr, there are plenty of chat groups there, and people can get involved in those and learn all kinds of cool stuff about the band and Ben. Let me know. Were there any key gigs? Were there any big gigs for them? Big gigs for the cars. Yeah, like maybe the gig that made him, you know, made it a particularly gig where uh, all that's memorable. Hmm. Well, Ben is quoted as saying that the most memorable memorable gig that he thought they ever did was when they performed at Live Aid. You know, they were at the Philadelphia concert for Live Aid, and I mean that was seen by millions and actually billions around the world. So. Um, I read an article once where Ben was quoted as saying that that was like the only time where he felt like he was really nervous. <laughs> um, so I don't think you can get too much bigger than the Live Age show. Yeah. So that, that stands out to me as probably like their biggest gig, if you will. Some people said they were boring live. What are your thoughts on that? Um, yeah, I've heard that too. And you know what I think it is? I think it's because... They concentrated, they really concentrated on the music and the sound. That was most important to them. They weren't demonstrative on stage. They didn't jump around a lot and run around, and they didn't have pyrotechnics and all kinds of stuff like that. It wasn't like some huge show. It was, it was more, here's our songs. Um, we, we care about the music, and, and they went out there and did their songs. And But you're right. I, I've heard that, too, that you know some people want to see a little more you know, jumping around and having a little more energy than that. So I can, I can understand why people would think that, but um, they weren't worried about that. They were worried about going on stage and doing the best show they could as far as you know, making their sound as good as it could be. And they really concentrated on the music as opposed to, you know, how seeing how flamboyant they could be. Is there anything you learned in all your research that surprised you about Ben or or the cars? Um, yeah, I think what surprised me about Ben was that you know, we talked about this glamorous rock star on stage and you know, Ben stepped up to the mic and um he thrilled millions and he was the heartthrob of the band and just just this glamorous, beautiful guy. I mean, he was. Um, but you know what? He flipped a switch to be a rock star. 
he was a very private guy off stage. He was very quiet, low key, avoided the spotlight. So that's how I describe it. He would flip a switch to go on stage and be a rock star and thrill millions for, you know, two and a half hours. And then he'd come off stage and he'd shut that switch off. And he just became a regular guy like you and me. Okay. So Joe Milliken, author of Let's Go, Benjamin Orr and the Cars, do you mind if I ask you about what it's like to get a publishing deal? It's your first book. Oh, Is that okay if yeah. I ask you some specific questions? Of course. I mean, if I can't answer okay. them, I won't, but you can absolutely so, ask. <laughs> how, how many uh, queries did you have to send out before you, you got a bite? Or how did you get this gig? How did you get this deal? I tell you what, I got lucky. Um... I hired a consultant. She called herself um, a self-publishing consultant, and she's a, an editor and a writer herself, and she's helped um, some Vermont authors get book deals. So because I was green to all this, you know, like I said, I've only written magazines and newspaper stuff, um, I, I hired her to help lead me and help me figure out how to do this. Because just as important as the manuscript that you're turning into a publisher, the proposal you give to them beforehand might be as important as the manuscript itself. Because you have to show a publisher that you can sell books and that you know where your audience is and that you can target them. Because what's the sense of putting a book out if no one's going to buy it and read it? So um, she was a coach for self-publishing, but you got a deal from an, a publisher. Right, because, you know, um, because I had heard horror stories about authors who take years to find a publishing deal, I, while I was going to attempt to find a publisher, I was also looking at self-publishing options because I was going to put this book out either way, okay. whether I found a publisher or not. And when I got ready, I created. it took me about two months to create the proposal. Um, my uh, public relations coordinator, Donna, and I worked on this proposal for a couple of months to send out to potential publishers. So I had that ready to go, but I was... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Also looking in the self-publishing options as well because my advisor told me, she goes, Joe, I've been working with authors who have been trying to get a deal for years and still don't have one. So I was looking at both options because I was going to put this book out either way. I started, I, I, I made a list of 50 publishers that I wanted to contact, all of them who were, all of them had published music-related books, so I at least knew that they would listen to me anyway. I started contacting these publishers, and I got about 15 publishers down the list, and six weeks later, I had a deal. And I'll never forget the day that I called back my consultant, and I said, Leanne, this is Joe. Um, I have a deal. And there was silence on the other end. And I'm like, Leanne, are you there? And she said, what are you saying to me? And I told her, I said, I've got a deal. You're kidding me. I mean, she was as thrilled and surprised as I was that I'd gotten the deal because she's the one who told me, Joe, you know, if it takes you a year or two to find a publisher, you can't get discouraged because some, you know, writers never get a publishing deal. And I had one in six weeks. Wow. So it, was a, it was a pretty amazing thing. And she was as 
thrilled and surprised as I was. <laughs> Pretty smart to have the consultant. And oh, how my, much did yeah. how much did you have to pay for for her services? Ballpark me if you if you don't want her, that's fine. I just want to know how much something like that costs. Um, we kind of. She was really good to me. We kind of did a thing where she's like, I'm going to keep track of my hours and how much I help you. And, you know, she knows I don't have a lot of money. I'm not some rich guy. I mean, I'm a, I'm a working stiff. And I have, a, I mean, I do a lot of writing and stuff, but I have a whole other job, too. Um, so she knew I wasn't a rich guy. So she just kind of kept track of what she was doing. And I would send her every couple of weeks, I'd send her a hundred bucks and we'd go along. And she worked with me for probably a year or so. I ended up, and I'll, I'll be honest, I ended up paying her probably, it was less than $2,000, you know? That's so pretty, it wasn't a lot of money. No, that's pretty good. Yeah, she was really cool to me, too. She was really, I mean, you know, she wasn't like, hey, I haven't gotten my check yet or anything like that. I mean, she was really super nice to me and obviously helped me a lot because I got a deal real quick. So how many get printed up right away? Well, um, to be honest with you, and this is just my opinion, I kind of think the publisher maybe underestimated me a little bit or the book a little bit. Um, and I understand nowadays, you know, they do smaller print runs now just because, I mean, you know, why print up 10,000 books and have them all sitting in a warehouse? And if you don't sell them all, you lose money. Yeah. So publishers don't do huge print runs anymore. Like 500? Um, I, think, I think my first print run was um, 800. Okay. So they did the, the first print run was 800, but they went really quick. And then they did a second run of another 800, and those are already gone. So we're doing a third print run right now, and we actually, anyone who's pre-ordering the book right now, it's on back order while they get more books done. So that kind of frustrates, frustrates me a little bit that fans are ordering books and they have to wait for them. But on the other hand, it's a good thing that all the books are already sold out. <laughs> did the... Um, so did yeah. the Publisher What's give that? you any idea of what, how they define success? Do they say, boy, it'll be great if you sell 1,600 books or 10,000 books? Did they give you an idea of how to define success? They really didn't give me a specific number, but I have a little story where I kind of determined how I could try to gauge what my success would be. Um, People really love the cover of this book. It's an iconic photo of Ben, and it's my favorite photo of Ben. And it was done by um, a famous rock photographer called, named Ebet Roberts. She's based in New York City. I mean, her photos have been on the cover of Rolling Stone, and, I mean, she's world famous. She actually went on tour with the cars for a few years and was their tour photographer. Um, so I approached Ebet and said, you know, here's this photo of yours that I want to use for my book cover. And she was thrilled because she loved Ben and she loved working with the cars. So she charged me for the photo and it was going to be on the cover. So she told me, okay, Joe, this, this, this charge for this co photo cover, cover photo, um, only goes for the first 10,000 run. If you go beyond 10,000 run, you have to pay me again. I'm not going to get you know, you can't pay one fee and have it go on forever. You know, what if I end up selling a million books? You know what I mean? Yeah. So she said, when it gets to 10,000, you have to pay me again. And that became my goal. I said, you bet I'm going to come back to you and I'm going to pay you again for that cover photo because I'm going to reach 10,000 books. That's cool. <laughs> Do you want so to that's share? How, that's how I kind of created my goal of trying to reach 10,000. So that's and, what I consider okay. above and beyond. 
And did was there a written contract or just a word of mouth? With, with the publisher? No, for the photo. EBay. For the photo. Oh yeah. Oh, with eBay, we had a we had a written contract out. Yeah. So it's so written I, um, it written down. If you go past ten thousand, you got to pay again. That's right. Um, you know what though? I mean, without saying without saying the amount of money that I paid her, yeah. um, she charged me less than a normal cover photo would be. Um, and she said the reason was that she loved the cars, she loved Ben, and get this, when I told her I wanted to use her photo, she said, okay, which one? I emailed her the photo, and she called me back on the phone and said, Joe, I am so thrilled that you chose this photo because it is literally one of the, my favorite photos I've ever taken. And this woman has taken photos of everybody. <clears throat> so that was a real cool moment for me that yeah. my favorite photo of Ben happened to be one of the favorite photos that she ever took. And because of that, she, she kind of cut the price down a little bit. Cool. I know you don't want to tell me the exact price, I can tell. But is it more like uh, $1,000 or $5,000? Okay, you know what? I've gone this far. Why don't I just tell you? She charges a thousand bucks for a cover photo, and she gave it to me for less. <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, that's really yeah. cool. Oh my God, it was so cool that she said to me, Joe, this is arguably my favorite photo I've ever taken. She says I remember to this day exactly where I was, and I remember taking this photo and saying to myself, "This is going to be a great one." So it was. It was one of her favorites, and, and that was a real cool thing for me. For How sure. long did this whole thing take you from the idea to now? Oh, boy, you're not going to believe this, but... Eight years? How, what'd you say? Eight years? Eleven. Eleven years. Eleven Good for years. you, man. You didn't let the dream die. That's great. Yeah, and you know, a big part of it was because um, I told you earlier that Ben was such a private guy. A lot of the people that I interviewed were very, very reluctant to do it because, you know, they were thinking maybe this was going to be like some trashy backstage tell-all book of, you know, rock and roll debauchery and all that kind of stuff. And they didn't want they didn't want Ben's legacy to be tarnished, and they loved him so much that they wanted to protect his legacy. So in many cases. I not only had to convince these people to interview with me, but I had to interview them, create their quotes, put them into the manuscript, and then cut and paste their quotes and stick them in an email and send it to them so they could look it over and edit their quotes and make sure it was exactly the way they wanted it. So it was a real painstaking thing. It was a big pain. Big oh, pain. It was it took a long time. Okay, overall, this seems to be a really exciting and positive thing for you. Yes, yes? Oh, my God, yes. It's been such a wonderful experience. I've also learned a lot. Um, I'm going to be marketing this book, you know, for the next few months hard, and then I'm going to think about what I'm going to do for my next book. I have a short list of ideas. haven't made a final decision yet, but it will be music-related. What are a couple um, things on the short list? Uh, boy, do I want to give my secrets away? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Um, okay, I'll give you one idea. I'm thinking about writing a book about Boston bands in general. I know, I mean, being a music journalist for 20 years um, and being pretty close to Boston, um, I've learned and met a lot of Boston musicians who never became, they were on the cusp of becoming world famous, but never quite got there. You know, guys like Charlie Farron. Um, like Dave Tree. 
Yeah, guys like Charlie Farron and um, John Butcher, um, you know, guys like that that put out albums and did all kinds of cool things and did tours and warmed up for bands that were bigger than them but never quite got the recognition they deserved. So I'm thinking about putting together a book of all these different Boston bands that are famous in the Boston area but never quite got the credit they deserve. It'll be like a thing where maybe, you know, there's maybe 10 pages about each band and a couple of photos and just putting a whole bunch of these bands and artists into one book to hopefully maybe give them the recognition they and help them find some new fans. Wow, I appreciate it. I think that sounds like an awesome idea. I don't know. I don't know if it would sell outside Boston. Maybe it would, but I well, was I would sure like it. To, I'd I like you to do it. Hey, we have to go now. I want to thank you very okay. much, Joe Milliken author of Let's Go, Benjamin Orr and the Cars. Thanks for spending an hour with us here on Talking, man. Hey, last thing I want to say, if anybody's interested in ordering the book, I have a website. It's really simple, benorbook.com. You can go there and check out some photos and some stories, and hopefully you'll want to order the book and, and learn more about Ben. Thanks so much, Joe. Oh, Bradley, thanks so much, and I've been a fan of yours for a long time, all the way back to your BCN days, brother, so I really appreciate you having me on. Right on. Okay, <laughs> it's WBZ Thanks. News Radio 1030. Take care, brother. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.